Hello, and welcome to episode 166 of the Fitness Simplified Podcast. I'm your host, Kim Schlag. Today, I have on the podcast with me, Ashley Reaver. Ashley is a registered dietitian who focuses on helping people lower their cholesterol level and improve their heart health. And you know that this is a subject that is close to my heart pun intended. This has been a project I've been working on about six months now is improving my cholesterol. And Ashley and I dig deep into the practical steps you can take to lower your cholesterol levels. Before we jump into the episode though, I'm excited to announce that Fitter by the Day is now open. You can start literally today. If you have a goal to improve your health, to lose weight, you can jump in right now without doing something extreme. In Fitter by the Day, my new four-week program, we focus on protein tracking, mindful eating, daily movement, and crucial mindset work. It's going to help you start from right where you are right now and get you to the fitter, healthier version of you that you have been wanting to do without doing anything extreme. I'm going to pop the link in the show notes so you can find it there. All right, on to the show. Hi, Ashley. Hi there. How are you, Kim? Good. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for agreeing to this chat. Absolutely. Happy to be here. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. I know you're a busy lady with a new little baby, so we appreciate the time <laughs> you're taking out of your schedule <clears throat> to spend time with us. So look, here's the question I really want to start with. As a registered dietitian, have you always specialized in helping people lower their cholesterol and improve their heart health? Um, how did that happen? I haven't. Um, I've done a lot of things as a dietitian. I started off in hospital food service, and then I moved into um, personalized nutrition where we really focused on blood work. That's really the first time I started working with cholesterol is seeing so many people that you know are generally healthy and think that they're incredibly healthy, and then they get their blood work back and their cholesterol levels are very high. Um, so working with individuals, especially athletes that think they're doing everything right. And this one cholesterol number being one of the main things that's just, you know, out of left field for them. And they didn't know how to approach it, whether that be someone that has a family history and thought that they were outworking their family history or someone without a family history and just didn't know um, what could impact that cholesterol level. Um, from there now, I also teach at um, UC Berkeley. And um, really working at UC Berkeley was how I got into making a big pivot to focus on cholesterol. During COVID and 2020, during the summer, I teach our introduction to nutrition classes. And we were all remote in 2020. And the lesson that I covered on lipids that talks through what cholesterol is, what it does in the body, why it's important, you know, and what can influence it. I had a student email me afterwards that said that, you know, their parent watched it. They'd been on cholesterol medication for over 10 years. And they said that was the most impactful thing they'd ever heard. They'd never gotten that much information from their doctor on cholesterol, why it mattered and what influenced it, despite being on medication for 10 years. And that kind of made a light bulb go off in my brain of this information is really being wasted on the youth because, you know, what 18 or 19 year old is going to take that information and Fortunately, the student passed it on to their parent, but either remember it for themselves or be able to, to tell someone that they care about. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I do have a family history of high cholesterol. A lot of members of my family um, have high levels. So it's always something that's been at the back of my mind. Um, but it was really that, you know, that student making me realize we can do remote education um, and there's not good resources out there for helping people really be able to lower their cholesterol without just, you know, being given a prescription. 
Yeah, certainly not all in one place, right? You have to like really know where to look and dig around. So I'm a person um, who I really resonate what you uh, spoke about there, who seems really healthy. And then you get some scary numbers back. So I have a long line of heart disease and other heart related problems in my family. My dad passed away of heart disease. His dad passed away of heart disease. My maternal grandmother and then my mom and my brother have other um, serious heart health issues. So it was something that was on my on my brain. And when I had obesity in my 30s, I had a very high cholesterol. But when I lost that weight um, over a decade ago, you know, in my early 40s, I was able to go off statins. My cholesterol has been primo until, <laughs> and luckily I caught it this summer. I actually began meeting with a cardiologist for something totally unrelated. I was having some really scary exercise induced heart palpitations. Um, and so they did this really in-depth cardiology workup and nothing came of the palpitations. It was likely just like more menopause drama, which <laughs> I seem to have a lot, but the doctor was very sober about my long-term heart health. He was not happy. I was shocked mm -hmm. when we got the blood work back and the calcium score back. Um, I had no idea. So I felt really glad that I had had this reason, um, you know, to discover all of these things. Now that said, they're not terrible, but they're not great. And at my age of 52, he said, these numbers should not look like this. And it does not bode well for me with my family history in 10 years, in 15 years. Um, so this is obviously a subject that I have great personal interest in, but also as a coach to menopausal women, you know, heart disease is the leading cause of death in women generally. And that um, risk increases with the onset of menopause. And so the women I coach are very interested in the subject too. And so exactly what you said there is where I'd like to start. The, like, What is cholesterol? Why does it matter? And then we can move into like what impacts it. So hit us with some sure. facts here, Ashley. What is cholesterol and why should we care about it? Sure. So cholesterol is a type of fat that your body produces. We also do find it in food. Um, and there's a big misconception right off the bat, kind of the cholesterol that you eat in your food does not automatically get uh, absorbed into your bloodstream and become cholesterol there. Um, so your dietary cholesterol, I'm sure we'll get there, but not something necessarily to stress about so much. Well, yeah, I definitely so if that one that. doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if food uh, providing cholesterol doesn't matter, you know, why do we still have cholesterol in our blood? It's because we have all of the machinery that we need to produce cholesterol from anything that provides energy. So protein, carbohydrates, fat, and alcohol can all become cholesterol in the body. Um, and we have that machinery because we need cholesterol. We have cholesterol in literally every single cell in our body. It helps to, uh, it's part of our cell walls, keeps the structural integrity of our cells. Uh, it's really a basis for our sex hormones, our stress hormones, vitamin D is produced from that. And then we also have a digestive compound called bile, um, which we will, I'm sure, get to again, too, um, that is produced from cholesterol. So cholesterol does a lot of important things in the body, and we absolutely need it, which is why our body can produce it. Um, certainly, there are some things that increase that production. Some of those are within our control, like things that we might eat. Um, the cholesterol can hang around in our diet or in our bloodstream a little bit longer, also based on things that we eat. And then there's definitely a genetic component that's there. Um, big genetic component would be something called familial hypercholesterolemia. And typically those are um, issues with your body either producing too much, not necessarily getting feedback that, hey, we've made enough. I don't need you to make any more right now or your body has an issue pulling cholesterol out. Um, but there's a lot of other smaller factors with genetics that can also influence either how much cholesterol your body makes or 
um, kind of the efficiency at using that cholesterol that you already have. So we need cholesterol. We would not be in a good spot without it, but the problem comes right. when we have too much and particularly too much in our blood. Is that the issue? Right. Exactly. And it's not necessarily, um, yeah, well, I'll back up. I don't want to overcomplicate it too much, but it is when we have more than our body necessarily needs, um, that can be an issue. So cholesterol in particular related to heart disease, I always like to think about it as cholesterol being the match and then inflammation actually being when you strike that match for heart disease. So heart disease, uh, you know, if you think about it in terms of arteries having blockages in them. Um, that blockage is really created when you have cholesterol that gets underneath the lining of those arteries. And then you can have basically your immune system tries to protect you against that. And that's what can cause those accumulations of plaque. That plaque is ultimately what can narrow your arteries or in some cases could break off travel elsewhere. And that could be what leads to a stroke if it goes to your brain. Um, so cholesterol has to be present in order for those to happen. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's the only thing that's important. As I mentioned, that inflammation is a really important factor that goes there too. So again, trying to think about, I can't light a fire unless I have this match, but the match on its own isn't necessarily dangerous. Right. Um, let's talk about inflammation for a minute. It's certainly a buzzword, right? We hear it a lot on, in the online space and often um, it's used in a fear-based way um, to sell some sort Absolutely. of something or other, right? Like do this <laughs> thing that I'm selling you because I mean, it's going to help you to you know lower your inflammation. What do people need to know about um, inflammation, systemic inflammation and how to manage that? Yeah, I will say for heart disease, it's the number one, like cause of death for both men and women in the United States, but also worldwide. And as you mentioned, the risk of heart disease goes up like four times for women post-menopause. So it is something that is extensively studied. Um, you know, the TikToker that came out with this new groundbreaking thing, he's not doing massive research or she isn't doing massive research under uncovering something that no one in the scientific world has ever you know, been exposed to for the past 50, 60 years of really digging into this topic. Um, that inflammation piece, but really the biggest sources of inflammation that we know about and that most people need to focus on, 99.9% .9 of focus should be on controlling inflammation from smoking. Do not smoke, it's not worth it. Um, managing your blood, glu or blood glucose, so diabetes is a big source of inflammation. Your blood pressure is another really big source of inflammation. And then managing your body weight, so having a healthy uh, body fat percentage in particular is another really important one. So. Those are the four things that we know contribute the most inflammation to the body. And those are the ones that also you have some control over. Mm -hmm. um, we just saw through COVID, you know, COVID being something that was so damaging for a lot of people because it really increased inflammation. Uh, and that led to a lot of people with COVID passing from blood clots, traveling around from heart disease, from stroke or heart attacks or strokes. Um, so that was like a really intense example of how important this inflammation in the body is for leading to those um, heart disease related conditions. Got it. Got it. Um, I like to hear what those big rocks are so that people can really focus on those and not the little whatever minuscule thing is that somebody influencer is trying to tell you to eat or not absolutely to eat or buy or whatever it is. Um, those are four big rocks. Absolutely. So I heard a, a great thing before that was uh, focus on fingers, fingers, uh, feet and forks being 
the best things that you can do uh, for, you know, just your overall heart health, like moving your feet is great. Trying to get exercise, smoking. That's the Again, I, I'm always amazed by how many people um, are surprised you know, that they've been smokers and then they have a heart attack. No one ever connected. They think the risk is lung cancer. But when you're you know, putting a lot of that stuff into your lungs, that is a lot of inflammation, a lot of damage that you're should say damage that you're causing your body tries to deal with that through inflammation. And then obviously your fork things that you can eat. Those are um, three very, very important things to focus on. Awesome. I love that. So when it comes to cholesterol, knowing our numbers is important. Can you remind listeners of what numbers they should be interested in and then what those numbers should optimally look like? Sure. Um, so there's a, a couple layers here, I'll say big layers. If you think about just the lipid panel that most people have had at least one time at their doctor's office would include LDL cholesterol, um, low density lipoprotein is what that LDL stands for. That's often termed the quote unquote bad one. Um, in itself, again, it's not bad, but if it's too high and it's too high for too long, that's really the type of cholesterol that's associated with the formation of those plaques in the arteries. HDL is high density lipoprotein. Um, that is good cholesterol, quote unquote. Um, although we are seeing now with the popularity of incredibly high fat diets that there is a limit to good. Um, you know, super high LDL isn't always protected by incredibly high HDL that goes with it. So um, there's still an optimal range for that one, but that's the one you want to try and get as high as uh, high as possible. It's a little harder to move. Um, triglycerides are usually included on that lipid panel. Triglycerides are basically the, the primary form of fat, both in our bodies, as well as what we eat. So about 95% of the fats that we eat are in triglycerides. And then that's also how our body stores energy. Um, and then often total cholesterol will also be included on that panel. And total cholesterol is usually a combination of HDL, LDL, and a fraction of triglycerides. Um, the numbers really to pay attention to the most there are definitely LDL, HDL, and triglycerides. Your total cholesterol, you could be, you know, normal or good, but you still have really high LDL, but really low HDL. Mm. Um, so you want to make sure that you dig into those numbers behind total cholesterol to make sure that you really are good. Right. So look at um, your other layers total, down. But then also look at yep. the LDL too and see like, and the ratio of the LDL to the HDL. Exactly. Cause you could be below 200, but your LDL could be, you know, 150 and your HDL could be 20. Like that's not a ratio that we want. Right. Right. Um, the other numbers that I received, I had never even heard of these two things <laughs> until the summer. Yep. I'd never heard of APOB. I didn't know what that was. Um, and it seems to me, a lot of doctors are saying that it's an even better predictor of heart disease than our total cholesterol. Is this what? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. So I would say another layer down, we've got these other metrics and ApoB, I think is really where most of the focus is going to shift. ApoB is basically what, uh, it's a protein that allows us to transfer cholesterol basically to cells. So our, anything that is able to move this cholesterol is going to have this ApoB. So that's going to be not just LDL, but what happens in the body before LDL is something called IDL. Before IDL is something called VLDL. Those are two things that we don't pick up when we're measuring LDL, but they have this ApoB and could be potentially atherogenic. Same thing with triglycerides. Triglycerides are also something that's considered atherogenic. They can transfer, uh, well, they have this ApoB molecule on them, I'll say. 
Um, so that is an important one. Basically, though, what it's telling us is it's just more, a more of a specific way to assess the same risk that we get from LDL. And I think sometimes when scientific guidelines change, the thought is that, you know, everything is wrong, when in reality, we're just getting more specific. Your LDL is still the number one source of ApoB in your body. Now we're just able to pick up ApoB on other things a little bit better. Um, LP little a, I think is another one that we're really learning more and more about. And this is uh, something that we can't influence by lifestyle. Um, this marker, if it's elevated, you're likelihood of developing those plaques in your arteries really is, is higher. Unfortunately, it doesn't matter what you eat. doesn't matter if you exercise. doesn't matter if you take statins for it. Nothing's going to be able to bring this LP little a back down. Um, so that one is really where this strong family history comes in. That's one thing that we could potentially look at that your doctor might want to be much more aggressive in trying to bring those cholesterol levels down if this LP little a is elevated. There's no medication directed that for to, that. You're saying there's nothing you can do about that, but it's an indicator that the rest of your cholesterol numbers should be aggressively lowered. Exactly. So risk. it's kind of controlling what you can control. You know, we know yeah. that this puts you at an increased risk. Unfortunately, what you can control has nothing to do with that, but really focusing on being more aggressive with your LDL or your ApoB. Um, preventing diabetes, monitoring your blood pressure, maintaining healthy body weight, and just being active. Like for those people, those are important for everyone, but for those people, it should really add an extra layer of importance to it. Um, and then uh, LDL particle size, I think is something that's dying away. It was very popular again, as a thing to just really confuse people related to cholesterol a few years ago. Um, there's a couple different sizes that you could find LDL from really small dense ones to kind of big fluffy ones. The small dense LDL are the ones that are more likely to get under that arterial lining and cause some of those issues that can lead to plaque. Um, in reality though, that never was a marker that made it to any sort of medical significance because you're only gonna have high LDL particle numbers if you have high LDL in general. Um, so those ones I think are dying away. I don't hear those as much anymore as, you know, reasons to just why the medical establishment is wrong on cholesterol because we only test this. Um, you can't have high LDL particle numbers unless you have high LDL. Um, but yeah, I would definitely say knowing your LDL and your HDL, your triglycerides are key. If you can know your ApoB, that's great. And then LP little a is new. Um, but I think that it is something that doctors are going to start testing and testing young in 20 year olds, um, just so that they know their risk going through so that, you know, thinking about your cholesterol isn't something that starts when you're 50. Yeah. You know, my doctor, my cardiologist was talking to me about the fact, and he's like, you know, the plaques that we're seeing in you now, those started forming decades ago. And mm -hmm. you know, that got me thinking about my kids who clearly have some of the same heart health history that I have. Luckily on their dad's side, it's a little bit better. Um, and I was thinking like, what changes could they start making to their diet now? What could they add in? What could they be paying attention to so that they're in a better condition when they hit 50, you know, that they're not just starting yeah. to think about it in their forties and fifties. So I do think that that's great. So there's that you can have your doctor look at this LPA, even in your twenties, you're saying to kind of see like, how important should this be uh, in my priority of, of things to focus on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it's great to, again, move that, shift that focus back 
humans we're going to develop plaques that's just what we do as human beings but it's really nice to be able to prevent some of that development because once they're there it is incredibly difficult to remove them um, that's not something that you know maybe you can move it a little bit you can reduce those plaques through statins or through lifestyle but for the most part once they're there they're there so if you can be aware of those earlier in life and care about them um then that really, really is something, a tool that we can use for overall longevity and, and health span later in life too. Yeah. So the other number that I received, again, I had no idea this was even a thing. Interestingly, my husband had just gone for a checkup around the same time I was visiting my cardiologist and we ended up making tests for the same day to get our um, heart calcium score numbers done. I had never heard of this test before, um, but his, like I said, his doctor had suggested it just as a, he had just turned 50 and this was a test yep. that she was running. Is that pretty common these days that um, doctors, it was not one that had been recommended to me. Um, is it something that's catching on more that doctors just preventatively suggest you get these numbers done? I don't think so. Um, I think it's worth asking your doctor if you're aware of it, if they're willing to run that test um, or send you for that test, I should say. Um, you know, in, in the course that I offer, a small percentage of people actually have gotten that test done. And for someone that's really concerned that if they have high levels of cholesterol and they, you know, for some people, the anxiety of, I just need to know of how bad this is, yeah. that test can be really helpful. Um, it can be what really pushes someone into deciding that, okay, I'm going to take my doctor's recommendation of taking statins because I have some of this calcification that's already happened, or, you know, my cholesterol has been high. My calcium score is pretty low though. So I'm really going to lean into, you know, lifestyle factors to try and keep that as low as possible. Um, it is something that you can try and go into an imaging center in whatever state you live in and ask. I know in some states it's as cheap as $50 and you don't have to use your insurance for it. Other times, of course, if your doctor orders it, you might be able to get it for free. But I think it, you know, again, if that anxiety level for some people is just so, so high, it is an, an, uh, an option for you to get some more of that information that can help you make the best decision. Yeah. Uh, both my husband and I had to pay out of pocket for that. It was not covered by insurance, which I guess is pretty common. Um, I don't know why, because it seems like it could be pretty useful <laughs> information. Mm -hmm. It feels like something insurance company should be paying. I want to say we both paid right around 150, like something like that for the test. Um, I was a little bit freaked out about it. I'm claustrophobic. I was like, am I getting put in a tube? Like what, what is this test? <laughs> but it's not at all. It was like a donut thing. And like, it's, you slide your body in to do the imaging. So anybody who's listening and you have anxiety about testing, I definitely have test anxiety for all kinds of medical procedures. And this is not, um, this is not anxiety producing, which I think is, is always a good thing. <laughs> um, and it may be anxiety reducing, you know, absolutely. all of these numbers, even if they, even if they come back higher than you wanted, it's yeah. just data that you have to make a decision on. So yes, it, you know, it, it might not be what you wished, but now, you know, you know, if you need yeah. to be more aggressive, and I, I think that people having control or having knowledge of their numbers, being able to get those numbers more frequently than once a year is really, really important and really empowering. Yeah. And it was interesting to me. I would have bet money that my score would have been better than my husband's because he's a like, I eat four eggs and bacon kind of guy all the time. Like he's always eating. I don't, he, he's not unhealthy. He goes to the gym, but his diet is not what mine is. Like I really have put for a good decade now, a lot of effort into eating vegetables and fruit and just really being proactive, healthy. 
and he had um, zero on the, the calcium score <laughs> and I had a higher number. And I was like, that's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair. But I was really glad that I had all of this information. I felt very empowered leaving my cardiologist with knowing exactly what my numbers are. And I did feel the desire to, to make more changes to see like, what can I do to get these numbers lower? Um, and my kids and I have been talking about preventatively, like what can they do? Uh, from a preventative good. standpoint to keep those numbers in a good position. And that's kind of where I want to talk now. A lot of people listening to this, maybe they don't have high cholesterol yet. Maybe they're like, okay, my numbers are good. Um, but since we do talk about specifically with women who are listening to this podcast, you know, our risk for heart disease uh, as we age and cholesterol is a piece of that. When it comes to cholesterol, what are some of the most impactful changes people can make to their diets from a preventative standpoint? Like what are some of the sure. really big rocks? Um, so there's three nutrients that I always like to talk about. Um, the first one is that dietary cholesterol that we talked about before. And I only bring it up as a point of emphasis of it's not the most important thing to focus on just because the names are the same. Yeah. But also you think 25, 30 years ago, maybe that's where the medical establishment kind of was of saying that high cholesterol foods directly impact your cholesterol, um, which isn't the case. Science, thank goodness, evolves. It changes. It doesn't mean you can't believe it. It means that we're always going to be trying to provide care with the best information that we have. Um, so dietary cholesterol is, it has a small impact. And for some people that might be a lot larger, um, for a small percentage of people that dietary cholesterol you know, our, their bodies might just do something different with it. But when you eat cholesterol, let's say in eggs, I'm from Maryland. So I always hear, um, you know, I had crabs yesterday and that's why my cholesterol is high, which is not true. Um, but your body eat, uh, absorbs that cholesterol. And just like any other type of fat, your body digests it, breaks it down, and then decides what it wants to do with it. It doesn't automatically get absorbed into your bloodstream and become cholesterol. Um, so crabs and shrimp I've heard have higher cholesterol, but you're saying this is not something to worry about. Nope. And it's because mo same thing with eggs. Um, they're good sources of protein. They have this dietary cholesterol. It doesn't mean that they are, you know, I don't want anyone to go and eat 16 eggs a day or a bushel <laughs> of crabs every single chance they get, because it's not zero, but you know, maybe we absorb about 10% or about 10% of that cholesterol impacts our cholesterol, but it is not a direct number. So eggs are not something that necessarily need to be completely off the table for people. Um, what so really has a, a bigger impact. So when people are like, okay, want right. to reduce my cholesterol, uh, my cholesterol numbers, actually reducing dietary cholesterol is not the money move. Nope. And one thing I always think is really surprising for people is um, chicken, pork, and beef all have the same amount of cholesterol in them. And when you ask people what's a better option or what's lower in cholesterol, many people are naturally going to say chicken, when in reality, it has the same amount of beef. But the difference, there is another nutrient that does have a bigger impact, and that's that saturated fat. So if you look at chicken versus beef, certainly you can find some cuts of chicken, you know, maybe if you're eating fried chicken wings or something like that, right. that are high in saturated fat. But for the most part, chicken has less of that saturated fat in it than beef and some cuts of pork. Eggs have some saturated fat, but relative to their protein content, it's actually they're a pretty good source of protein that's pretty low in saturated fat. Shrimp, crabs, and other seafoods, same thing. They have a fair amount of protein in them with a fair, fairly low amount of saturated fat. And the saturated fat is really important. And I think this is a big distinction in, in families. You know, if you and your spouse eat the exact same way, 
but you have high cholesterol and your spouse doesn't, it might be because you are much more sensitive to saturated fats mm -hmm. and your partner, um, which is a good thing that you and your partner have different genetics. If you were very similar genetically, there's other things going on there. Um, but that saturated fat, essentially, um, we if we eat too much of it, you can think about it as the LDL that our body makes with that saturated fat hangs out in our system for a bit longer. So it causes your LDL levels to be elevated for a longer period of time. Um, so reducing your intake of that saturated fat is really important so that your body's production of that LDL isn't a type of LDL that's just gonna stick around in your bloodstream for much longer. And typically we find saturated fats in animal products. So if it's a fatty animal product, most likely a fair amount, you know, majority of that fat is going to be saturated. Um, so butter, half and half heavy cream, chicken skin, hamburgers, those types of things contribute a fair amount of saturated fat to your diet. Cheese. You can also find it in plants, right? Cheese. Um, you can also find it in plants, which I think is, again, something that is a very big misconception for a lot of people thinking that, again, a lot of people um, combine cholesterol and saturated fat in their mind. They're two distinctly separate things. So the saturated fat you can find in coconut oil. It's the primary types of fat in coconut oil and chocolate and then in palm oil. Um, and most of us don't cook with palm oil in the United States. Certainly some cultures do. Um, but it, palm oil is something that is used in a lot of processed foods. Mm -hmm. So foods that you might not expect to be high in saturated fat, really based on the type of oil they're using could be. Pop microwave popcorn is a good example for that. Um, popcorn has no saturated fat, but Orville Redenbacher's Regular brand is made with palm oil and a serving has seven grams of saturated fat just oh, wow. based on the use of palm oil. Um, so those are kind of just important things to, to think about. Um, and once you start looking for saturated fat, I think you'll start noticing it on some nutrition labels a bit more. And the American Heart Association recommends 6% or less of our total daily calories from saturated fat. That's not an easy number to hit. That's not an easy. And I, know no, and I started trying to do it this summer. Um, that's a really, um, that takes a lot of effort to hit that low uh, in saturated fat. Right. And knowing what 6% of your you know calories from saturated fat are is difficult anyways. Usually I, I try and recommend sticking somewhere between 15 and 20 grams. If you take in less energy, you want to be towards the lower side. If you take in more energy, you can be towards the higher side. Importantly, and this is where I think, um, you know, a lot of people struggle with trying to eat in a lower saturated fat diet because there is, it is in a lot of things. Even plants are going to be significant sources of saturated fat sometimes. So peanut butter has saturated oils, fat. Right? Or is there, are there other plants? Peanut butter, let's say, has saturated fat in it. It doesn't mean that you need to avoid peanut butter. It just means that you need to be aware of the amount of saturated fat that's in that. And instead of thinking it, of it as a hard line, to stay below each day, think about it instead as kind of a rolling average. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, one day you're going out and, um, you know, you want to have something that is higher in saturated fats, it doesn't mean that you always have to say no, it just means that, okay, the other meals that day, or maybe the meals the next two days, how can you help bring that average back down? Your body doesn't operate on a 24 hour clock. So it's okay if your saturated fat intake isn't exact in those 24 hours either. Right, right. Yeah, I found that when I was looking to see like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to reduce my saturated fat? Just a moment. Somebody, my son just arrived home and I saw the car pull up and I was like, these dogs are going to go nuts. <laughs> my, 
that is the sound of my dogs being very happy because somebody has just arrived home. <laughs> um, okay, good. They calmed down already. Um, so for me, I was looking like, what are some like big changes that I could make? I was like, what would be, you know, we really want to enjoy our food, right? Nobody wants to make changes to their diet, <laughs> but they then like, don't look forward to eating. How long are we going to stick with that? Exactly. And, and so for me, mostly removing red meat, not, not forever, but I figure like, if I go out to a steakhouse, like I like steak, I'll have one, but I used to eat red meat like once a week. And for me, just to be like, you know what? I don't do that anymore. I don't have, I don't have red meat on a regular basis. It's like a, a special kind of food that for me was a pretty easy one. And one that was harder for me was cheese. And what I realized is I ate a whole lot of cheese. <laughs> like I was having like daily yeah. cheese. So that one, I started just ratcheting down, like how often I had cheese and then, you know, reducing like how much fat was in the cheese, you know, so I'll, I'll go for a lower fat kind of cheese. Um, but really looking instead of just making big sweeping changes, which I did the first few weeks, I panicked and I'm like, going to make all the changes and that quickly. You know, yeah. And I think I thought I could do that because I'm like, I do this professionally. I counsel people mm -hmm. with like how to change their diet. <laughs> like I know what I'm doing. And I did exactly what I would tell people don't do. I made all of the changes and then quickly burnt out. Yeah. So I dialed them all back, but with the saturated fat one for me, like looking at, and I know there's going to be more changes I make in the future, like looking at all these processed foods, how much saturated fat is in that. But I really do think a good guideline is have less processed foods and you're going to have less of that saturated fat, which is something sure. you know, I counsel people with all the time when we're just looking to either be healthier or to lose weight. Having less highly processed foods is always, it's always a good idea. Yeah. I think that you also like raise a good point that it's different for everyone. And something that I always like to encourage is you know, I don't offer a black and white list of this is in and this is out because that yeah. doesn't work. You, you get tired. You feel like you're super restricted. You throw your hands up and say, F it, I'm going for this. Yeah. And then it's really hard to, to be motivated to get back into it. And those um, payoffs or exchanges, whatever you want to call them is different. One. Um, you know, someone maybe, uh, you know, I've been told I can't live without my, okay, if you want half in your coffee, then maybe you should think else. Yeah. Um, and for other people, half half for them to throw out. If someone, you know, red meat thing that if you're going to have it, I'm only going to have it at a nice steakhouse. Um, all of those are, are individuals, which I think is also important. No one needs to completely get rid of everything. Absolutely. Okay. So that's one of the big rocks. We're going to work on reducing our saturated fat. Tell us again, how many grams did you suggest? Did you say 15 to 20? Yep, that's a general guideline, um, but I think that's an easier thing, an easier number to kind of think about than 6% of your daily intake. For sure. Uh, or 6% of your daily calories. Yeah, because to do that, what you have to be doing is tracking your calories. Um, I got the upgrade on Lose It so that I could see my daily saturated fat, but then you have to be tracking your calories to know what would be 6% of mm -hmm. it, right? And so that's pretty higher level right. skills for a lot of people, right? So even if somebody's like, I'm going to track calories. So now they're tracking their calories and they're tracking the protein and they're tracking their saturated fat. It can be a lot. So I do like hearing these easier right. ways to do it. So thank you for that. All right. So what else should people be paying attention to when it comes to being proactive about um, keeping their cholesterol low? Yep. So another big nutrient is soluble fiber and soluble fiber is the type of fiber that swells when it comes in contact with water. 
Um, the other type of fiber is called insoluble fiber. And that insoluble means that basically it's not impacted by water. So great visualization that I um, like to explain for this is thinking about putting beans or oats or chia seeds in a cup of water overnight in the refrigerator. When you come back in the morning, they've clearly absorbed that and they look pretty different. That's a great uh, visualization for soluble fiber. On the flip side, if you put carrots and celery and broccoli in water overnight, they look exactly the same in the morning. And that's because the type of fiber that they have is this insoluble fiber. So good, but not the most impactful fiber for your cholesterol. The soluble fiber is super important because essentially um, it traps this digestive compound of bile that we talked about in the beginning. Bile is a digestive uh, compound that essentially makes it so we can break down and absorb fats. It breaks fats down and then keeps them in kind of small enough form for our intestines to be able to absorb them. And when you have a diet that's high in soluble fiber, some of that bile gets trapped in the fiber and then gets transported out of our body. Uh, we need bile though, or else we wouldn't be able to absorb fats. So our body produces more of it. And it does that by pulling on our cholesterol stores. And that right there is really the only way that we can influence how much of that cholesterol our body has already produced gets used. It would be really awesome if we could intentionally say, I want to increase the structural integrity of my cells, or I want to make more testosterone, um, or I just want to think about making more vitamin D. We don't have control over cholesterol being used for those pathways. We do have direct control over how much cholesterol gets used to regenerate this bile um, that we have now removed with soluble fiber. Um, and that, I think, is a big uh, stumbling point for a lot of people, especially of a certain generation where carbs have been demonized for so long. When you remove carbs, you really do remove that soluble fiber. That's where we find the majority of that soluble fiber. Um, so if you are thinking, I eat a ton of fiber, but all of your fiber comes from fruits and vegetables, you don't have any fiber coming from whole grains, beans, certain nuts and seeds then yeah, you might be having a lot of fiber, but it's this insoluble fiber that's not the type that's going to be an influence on your cholesterol levels. Really interesting, the connection you're putting there with eating low carb, because that has been so popular for so long. And mm -hmm. I think there's still a lot of misinformation out there about how every, you know, so many people think it's like the optimal way to eat to maintain their weight and be healthy. And yep. yeah, missing out on specifically here with cholesterol, um, something that can be so impactful. And what I really like about this one is it's a pretty easy add. This is one of those things we're not trying to take things away, but trying to add things in, like adding in some yep. oats every day, adding in some lentils a couple of times a week, adding in some chia thing, seeds. These are not super big lifestyle changing, you know, yeah. nutritional changes, but they can be really impactful. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, if there's a lot of people that are trying to shift away from a more restrictive mindset, maybe they've been dieting for all of their life, thinking about just adding soluble fiber, not even touching the saturated fat component of trying to back that down, adding yeah. in more fiber is really impactful. Like if that's the one thing that you can do, Awesome. Because even if your body is still producing that type of cholesterol from saturated fat that sticks around a little longer, the soluble fiber is going to help to remove some of that at a faster rate than, you know, living without it, so to speak. Um, and this, again, is a common trap of people that commonly feel like they're doing everything right. For some reason in our world, doing everything right means you don't eat carbohydrates yes, um, yes. or you're you're active, um, but that soluble fiber piece is missing for so many people. And this is something that I also like 
to point out too is if you look at kind of popular diets compared to the standard American diet, standard American diet, high in saturated fat, low in fiber. Mm-hmm. Keto diet, high in saturated fat, low in fiber. Low carb or paleo, high in saturated fat, low in fiber. So it makes sense that even if you eat differently than your family, if you're doing, you know, one of those other diets that uh, you know you think you're doing to improve your health, it makes sense that you still might have the same high cholesterol that members of your family that eat the standard American diet have. That doesn't mean that you have a strong family history of high cholesterol. It means that your the nutrients you're taking in are supporting uh, an environment where your cholesterol levels could be higher. Okay, true story I'm about to tell you. It's frightening to me and it didn't shock me and I was sad by it. My cardiologist, super smart, definitely knew what he was talking about when it came to my heart. Um, he suggested that I go low carb. That was my cardiologist. I was, he gave me a book. He handed me a flyer. He's like, this is the book I suggest. He's like, while we, we were doing more tests, he's like, get this book. And I saw it and I can't remember what it was called. But it had like the word Mediterranean diet in it. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, let's see what this book is. I literally read the back cover and I was like, no way, <laughs> no way. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. And it was, it was, um, it was very low. And I asked him, I said, Hey, like that's really going against these guidelines from the, and I can never get, I'm never going to get this whole name part. The American journal of preventative cardiology. I'm like their current guidelines really talk about increasing fiber. How would I do that on a low carb diet? And he's like, well, I don't yeah. know about that, but we've, we've got, he's like, I'm telling you, if you can follow this diet, it's going to really help. And I was really discouraged that my medical professional who specializes in the heart was giving me advice that I knew very well was not correct. I was like that. And I, and I personally could just be like, well, I'm not going to do that. But other people who don't have, you know, the nutritional knowledge I do are going and getting the exact opposite advice than they, than they need when it comes to the nutrition piece of this. Yeah. I think that's, you know, just an important part to acknowledge about the medical profession in general. You know, if you need anesthesia, do not come to a dietitian. If you need dental work, <laughs> do not come to a dietitian. If you need to get a calcium scan, a dietitian cannot do that. But likewise, those people are not the ones that are trained in in nutrition either. Um, and I, I wish that, you know, we, one, that doctors knew that they don't need to know absolutely everything. There's a good resource for referring people out, people that yeah. do specialize in nutrition related to health conditions, you know, but also, you know, individuals also need to take on a little bit more responsibility and think their doctor doesn't know everything um, outside of their scope of practice too. So knowing that dietitians exist, especially if you're not familiar with looking at the American Journal of Preventative Cardiology, which most people would not go to. People wouldn't be like, that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, So Um, I really do think it's important to know, like when you're talking to your doctor, if they're discussing nutrition with you, asking to talk to a dietitian is a really good idea. And we're out there. And you're out there. <laughs> Most, you can find dietitians on insurance and especially post COVID. I feel like one of the best things that's come out of that is telehealth and a lot yeah. of states is here to stay. So yeah. even if you don't have a dietitian in your town, you likely can have access to a dietitian anywhere in your state that your insurance um, can help you access. Um, and most plans have at least three preventative visits um, under the Affordable Care Act. Love that. Okay. So we're working on reducing saturated fat. We're going to work on adding in more soluble fiber. Give us one more big rock. 
So protein is one that I'd like to bring up. Um, it's often something that I think falls out of the conversation when people think about eating less animal protein and eating more protein from plants. Mm -hmm. um, definitely, you can be a vegetarian and eat enough protein, but it is difficult. Um, and I certainly am not a vegetarian and I don't recommend that. Um, I don't think that you need to be a vegetarian mm -hmm. or a vegan to lower your cholesterol. Um, but often when you're, you know, if you're used to having meat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, now you're trying to think about saturated fat. So you back some of that meat intake off. You need to make sure that you're replacing the protein that you also got with that meat. Um, one reason that, um, you know, you can see someone lower their LDL level, which is great, but their triglycerides spike up is because basically their protein intake has really plummeted mm. and your protein intake is really, really influential on in your lean muscle mass. And this is in particular important for postmenopausal women as well, because your muscle mass, you start to lose that much quicker after menopause. Um, you see this shift in body fat going up and your muscle mass going down. Eating enough protein is going to be really key for helping to maintain that. So it does get not trickier. You, you know, you're going to be incorporating different foods that maybe you haven't before, but protein is still something that you have to think about. Certainly protein is really, really important for maintaining your muscle mass, especially when you're in a calorie deficit so that your muscles don't become your body's key energy source. Um, but that, again, when you're thinking about shifting away from eating as much animal, you still need to make sure that you're taking in a fair amount of protein because you want to maintain that muscle mass. And if we go back to what I talked about at the beginning, that your um, cholesterol is made from anything that contributes calories, so protein, carbs, fat, and alcohol. If you think about energy balance in your body, if you have excess energy, you have more of the um, starting block for what can become cholesterol. If you're eating in energy balance or a little bit of a deficit, you have less of that starting block. So your muscle mass plays a really, really key role in how much energy your body needs. Having more muscle mass, it's going to be much less likely that you overconsume and have excess energy available that can become cholesterol. So protein plays a really important role um, in, again, maintaining your muscle mass as well as making sure that you, you aren't constantly kind of overeating. Certainly you can do that, but it's a lot harder to overeat when you have more muscle mass and strength training goes really hand in hand with that too. So um, let's give people some good suggestions for protein that are not animal based because that can be really tricky, um, especially if a person is working on being in a calorie deficit because when we start trying to get our protein from things like lentils, it can get really... Um, it can be tricky to st then stay within your calories. I like to think of things like lentils as like a piece of a protein in a meal, but from people who are trying to be in a calorie deficit, often they're going to need something else to go with that to get in enough protein. Sure. For me, tofu has been a game changer. I never, I, I've eaten tofu, but I'd never cooked tofu a day in my life until uh, this summer when I started experimenting with it. It was actually not hard to cook. I really yeah. thought it was going to be some big process, but um, I air fried it. Um, and it My was, delicious. I literally just marinated. I found a quick sauce to marinate it in. It just was basically like seasonings and, and soy sauce. And I just marinated it and popped it in the air fryer. Oh, the other, I guess, key part was to put it in some cornstarch to make it crisp up. So it wasn't just like goopy and stuff. And it was delicious. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that that's a great point too, of thinking of most plant-based, um, protein sources aren't protein in isolation. They come either with fat or they come with carbs, right. um, which isn't terrible. 
Um, but it's again, just kind of reframing your mindset of this chicken breast is just protein. Now you kind of have to shift that to, again, it makes it a little bit more complex, not impossible, but it does make you have to be a little more intentional. Um, in addition, lentils of all the beans are like the highest in protein, but any bean is going to be a good protein source. Um, tofu, I think is great. Easy swap could be almond milk for soy milk. There you go from one gram of protein up to eight grams of protein per cup. That's kind of a no brainer to get seven more grams of protein. Yeah. Um, edamame is an awesome option for defrosting and having as a snack or tossing in a stir fry, putting on a salad. Um, I lean into Greek yogurt quite a bit. Um, certainly you can find Greek yogurt. Again, we're not worried about the cholesterol in Greek yogurt. You want to worry about that saturated fat, not worry. I should say, consider the yeah. saturated fat, right? Eggs and egg whites are great ways to be able to boost fat. Um, you certainly can have protein powders as well. Um, and for some people, a protein shake can be really, really helpful in making sure that you're able to get in enough protein. Um, and it doesn't have to be a plant-based one. It can certainly be a whey or casein protein. It shouldn't, ha should not have saturated fat in it if it's a protein supplement. Mm -hmm. Um, and then nuts and seeds are also great. Certainly they're going to come with fat that goes with it. But peanut butter is a great source of protein. Um, hemp seeds are one of my favorite sources of protein to sprinkle on something when you need more protein and fat. Pumpkin seeds are a good source of protein as well. Um, and those also come with a fair amount of fiber in them too. Yeah. And those are all things that if a person is looking to lose weight, you're going to have to really moderate your portion size, but in conjunction with other foods, they can definitely add that little like boost of, of protein. I've been doing a lot of Greek yogurt in the morning. Now, here's my question for you. Do you suggest when you're looking at saturated fat in yogurt, do you suggest the 0% or a 1%? Do you think 0% is the best option or is 1% okay? And honestly, I would throw whole Greek yogurt into that mix too. It depends. You really? know, if you don't eat things that are high in saturated fat anywhere else and you like whole milk Greek yogurt, if it fits into that range, why would you not have it? Yeah. Um, so that's how I would encourage people to approach it. You know, if I prefer to have other things that are much higher in saturated fat, I don't care if my Greek yogurt is 0%, that's the one that I'll go for. If um, I don't have that much saturated fat, I have room for whole milk Greek yogurt, and I really like that, then that's the one that I would choose. So if you're working on towards that, staying in that 15 grams of saturated fat a day, and if you're like, hey, if you want to get those from the whole fat Greek yogurt, then do it. If you're looking to yeah, use, I, yeah. have saturated fat, and I think that's for me, I've been like, all right. I like the taste just fine of a 0% yogurt. If I'm putting other things in it, I've been making this breakfast for months now that I have the 0% yogurt. And then I put um, a handful of, don't think I'm weird people, but I really do think that like just plain oatmeal that's not cooked. I think it like gives a nice texture. I think it's so me I, too. And so I throw that in there. I don't even do like the whole overnight oats things. I think I kind of did this one time because I was lazy and I hadn't made them overnight. So I just throw that in there. And then I put a handful of like all bran or bran buds, not a handful that would be a lot. I'd be like pooping my pants, but I put, a, I put some, <laughs> I put some of that for the fiber in it. And then I put like raspberries and blueberries, not blueberries. I hate blueberries, raspberries and um, blackberries in there. And I often will buy them frozen and then heat them up so that they're kind of hot and juicy when I pour them over the yogurt. And then I have this big like concoction. Oh, and I put a little bit of walnuts on there too. And so, yeah. and people might be like, that was a lot of calories. And it is, it's a big, it's a big hearty breakfast. It's like 550 calories. It keeps me full for hours. I get a huge amount of fiber in that and a big bunch of protein in it. 
I'm not hungry for hours. And I just, I know I've, yeah. I've really checked off a lot of boxes of what I need in my day with this breakfast. Yeah. And I think that that's also a great point that you raise and something that, again, just of constantly being in a mindset of, of restriction of under eating, of thinking that your meals can't be more than 350 calories. Ultimately what that leads you to do is later in the night, reach for those choices that tend to be, you know, a bit more comforting maybe, or a bit more convenient. They're going to be higher in saturated fat, probably aren't going to have protein in them, probably aren't going to have fiber in them. So it really is a mindset shift also of knowing that you're supposed to be full after you eat a meal. The point of a meal is to be satisfied for a few hours not to get by with as little as possible. Yeah. So calories are definitely an important part of that conversation, but not necessarily in the way that most people would think um, of encouraging you to eat enough. (laughs) Calories are not the enemy. Like you, you need to eat real meals. And it is shocking. Like when you say like 300 calories, like when I was a new coach, I absolutely made content around ridiculous things eight years ago, like how to have a 250 calorie salad. And I look back on that now and I'm like, what in the world? Why would I be trying to get anybody to have a 250 calorie lunch? Like if that's going to go alongside the rest of your lunch, sure. Right. But like the idea that we should be trying to keep our, our meals at 250, 300 even calories, like it's not usually enough to sustain a person. You're often going to find yourself back in the kitchen looking for yet another snack because you're hungry. Yep. Exactly. And those snacks, we don't tend to have as much control over when you're famished, you're likely not going to grab your, you know, small amount of all buds or whatever you said, fiber yeah. buds, whatever type of thing you put in there, you're going to go yeah. for something else. Um, yeah. So if you can instead have your calories from those goods that also come with those good nutrients that you're looking for, go for that. Don't wait to be starving later at night to meet your calorie goals for the day. Fantastic. Well, there's definitely more we could talk about, but we've been on almost an hour now. So we're going to wrap up. I do like to wrap up by asking the women that I'm talking to about what they do to move their body. So what do you do now? You are in a different life circumstance than most people that I've talked (laughs) to recently having a two month old baby. So you might not be doing too much, but what, what do you do to move your body? walking. Uh, honestly, I have a post that goes up today. That's about, you know, exercise looking different in different seasons of your life and that being okay. My expectation is to try and go out for a 30 to 60 minute walk a day. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I'm not expecting myself to be able to go back to the gym or to who knows if I'll ever be able to run again, <laughs> or run comfortably again. Um, so walking is so, so underrated. 30 minutes a day is amazing. And even adding 30 minutes to a current routine that you have, there's so many cardiovascular benefits to that. Um, I do have a Peloton. So sometimes I'll try and hop on for 20 minutes during nap time, just to feel like an extra little bit of accomplishment. Um, and the new year, I'm very excited to be able to get back to lifting some weights. Um, I do think that strength training has to be there for everybody, even if it's 15 minutes of body weight two times a week. That is something that all women in particular really, really should be doing. Fantastic. Now, I know you offer some incredible resources for people. You're an amazing source of free information on Instagram. Um, so tell people where they can find you on Instagram. Sure. My handle is lower.cholesterol.nutrition. And then you also have a course that actually helps people practically put in, well, practically put into practice the things we've talked about today. Tell (laughs) us a little bit about your course. Absolutely. So the course really walks you through 
um, the what, when, why, and how of cholesterol and how to lower it. Um, so phase one really is just an education and background on cholesterol, what it is, where it comes from, what influences it. Um, phase two, we go through all of the food groups, um, you know, dairy, eggs, meats, oils, um, alcohol is in there and how they influence your cholesterol, the best options within those um, and things to maybe incorporate a little bit um, less frequently. And then most importantly, I think phase three of the course is great. Now you have all of this information. What do you do with it? You can have the best plan in the world, but if you can't execute it, it doesn't matter. Um, so phase three really walks you through how to slowly incorporate um, these changes, how to navigate the different preferences of people in your household, how to do it with a tough schedule, how to think about meal planning, um, which, which I think is probably the most important part, uh, because if you can't do it sustainably, there's really no point in starting it. You do not want to yo-yo your cholesterol. That does not improve your overall health. So being 10% better for the rest of your life is better than being 100% better for one week. Um, and that's really what we focus on doing, making it approachable and making it sustainable in phase three. I love that. That's so important. Yeah, ladies, don't do what I did. Don't like freak out about your cholesterol <laughs> numbers and haul, overhaul your diet for two and a half weeks and be like, I can't do this. Definitely. And, and I'm, that, that's what most people definitely do. Um, I yeah. have a free video that kind of talks about... Um, the two approaches. And one of them is that exactly. That's what most people do. They throw everything out that they have in their house. Then they just like, feel like they can't do it. Um, and then they go back to the doctor, the doctor sees they haven't made progress and then they start on medication, um, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's just, you haven't given yourself the best opportunity to do it without medication when you do it that way, in my opinion. Um, and also, you know, it, it teaches you Ideally, it's something that you do for a few months, not look at this the week before your doctor's appointment when you heard last year at your physical that you're watching right. your cholesterol. Watching your cholesterol, you are going to watch it increase. So you really want to implement some of these small steps to stop that increase from happening and, and to start it going on a much lower trajectory for your overall health, but also for your next physical so that it's not a, oh, look what happened. We did nothing and it kept going up. <laughs> Yeah, actually taking some action steps, no matter how smart they are, if you could just pick one of these things and do it daily or several times a week, it could be really useful versus, you know, waiting to see, waiting to see what happens next exactly. year when, when you go back to the doctor. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ashley. This has been a fantastic conversation. Appreciate you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Bye.